Shalom, everybody here from Jerusalem. Welcome to the ICJ weekly Thursday afternoon webinar. I hope you all have a wonderful day wherever you are joining us from around the world, whatever time zone it might be. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, you're always welcome here at our webinar of the International uh, Christian Embassy uh, Jerusalem. Now, today we have a, a very special uh, seminar, a very special webinar. And this webinar today has a historic connotation to what was taking place exactly 125 years ago in the city of Basel. As a matter of fact, there will be a big state celebration in Basel in a few days commemorating 125 years of uh, Zionism. And this was uh, Theodor Herzl would later on write in his diary, said there 125 years ago in Basel, I created the state of Israel or the, the, this, the state for the Jewish people. And one of the reasons why Theodor Herzl was establishing the state of Israel was a affair that was emerging in uh, France at that, at that time, which was called the Dreyfus Affair because of an, a Jewish French army officer that was uh, accused of all kinds of uh, uh, crimes. And it basically, at the end of the day, was a, an, a trial that was based purely on anti-Semitism. And this Vienna journalist Theodore Hartzley realized we need a homeland for our people where we can separate us from all those different streams of anti-Semitism and also where we can protect our people from assimilation in the diaspora wherever they are living. Therefore, our subject today, 125 years after the Zionist conference, is anti-Semitism still a subject that needs to be taken serious today? And if yes, what is the role that Christians can play in order to fight anti-Semitism? Now, we have today an expert with us. I think we couldn't have gotten a better speaker for that uh, webinar today, Dr. Lawrence Weinbaum. Uh, Lawrence, it's uh, such a privilege and an honor to have you with us. Welcome to this webinar. And uh, let me introduce uh, Dr. Lawrence Weinbaum. He's the Director General of the World Jewish Congress Office in Israel. The World Jewish Congress, those of you who don't know, it is the largest body representing the Jewish communities all around the world. Uh, he's also the uh, Chairman of the Israel Council of Foreign Relations. He has served as the Chief Editor of its thrice annual publication, the Israel Journal of Foreign Affairs, since it was established in 2006. Uh, Dr. Weinbaum also has written extensively on East Central European history, contemporary Jewish and Israeli affairs. His latest book, Heroes, Hucksters and Storytellers, that's an amazing title. I need to get hold of that book. Uh, on the Jewish Military Union of the Warsaw Ghetto, co-authored with the Polish historian uh, Darius Libonka, was published at the end of 2011 by the Polish Center of Holocaust Research of the Polish Academy of Science. He's a graduate of the uh, Edmund Walsh School of uh, Foreign Service at Georgetown University uh, in Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, if, I hope you don't mind, Lawrence, if we talk to each other by our first name, because we know each other for many years. Lawrence, it's such an honor to have you with us today. Welcome to our weekly webinar here. 
Well, Jurgen, first of all, thank you so much for that very kind invitation. Um, I'm very moved to be invited to this program. As you've mentioned, we know each other for many years. And before I, I say anything, I'd like to express my heartfelt gratitude. And I think the heartfelt gratitude of uh, Israelis of all stripes for the extraordinary work that you do and the International Christian Embassy and um, those, who, those who are uh, following your work and making it possible in countries all over the world. Um, that's not something that we take for granted. And of course, we feel uh, greatly, greatly strengthened uh, by the fact that we have supporters in so many parts of the world and who are so dedicated um, to ensuring the well-being of Israel. Before I say anything um, about the topic, um, and I sometimes think if we're going to speak about anti-Semitism, I almost feel everything has been said about it, even if not everybody has said it. Um, but I hope I'll be able to add something. I'm speaking here uh, in a strictly private capacity. So whatever I'm going to tell you is based on my own interpretation or my own analysis of events. And I'm not speaking um, on behalf of any of the organizations um, with which I'm affiliated, lest there be any misunderstanding. Um, it's, it's, of course, very significant that uh, we are having this discussion 125 years after the Zionist Congress in Basel, because that certainly was a watershed moment uh, in Jewish, and I would say, world history. And on the one hand, um, the Jewish people today is, of course, in a very different place than it was 125 years ago. And the mm -hmm. fact that um, we have today a Jewish state, and a powerful Jewish state, which has all the I would argue the tools necessary to defend itself and to ensure its survival means that we are not in the position that we were 125 years ago. However, what's striking is that we're still having this conversation because Herzl sincerely believed that once a Jewish state would come into existence, the issue of anti-Semitism would wither away. Uh, in other words, whatever antipathy existed toward Jews would slowly disappear. And despite his brilliance, and he was undoubtedly a visionary, he didn't get that right because I think he didn't under, he, I think he, he underestimated, he didn't correctly uh, assess the depth of anti-Semitism. And it comes of course from so many different directions and we could approach this topic um, speaking as historians, political scientists, economists, uh, sociologists, psychiatrists and psychologists, and of course as theologians. So it all depends on how we want to, how we want to look at it. But you said something in your uh, opening remarks, um, which reminded me of a well-known quotation by the late great uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi of Britain and he was an outstanding thinker. He said, Jews cannot fight anti-Semitism alone. The victim cannot cure the crime. The hatred, uh, the hated cannot cure the hate. It would be the greatest mistake for Jews to believe that they can fight it alone. The only people who can combat anti-Semitism are those active in the cultures that harbor it. And so therefore mm -hmm. having this discussion among people who feel so very strongly um, the way they do about Israel and the Jewish people is really most, it's most appropriate. Um, you know, I, I sometimes feel 
I, I would I would say sometimes you're frustrated that after everything that has happened in in the world over the course of so many years, that this weed still still grows. Um, but it's a very hardy plant, and we found that no matter what the Jews do or what they don't do, anti-Semitism is going to be with us. And mm. how we combat that and how we confront this, um, I think, is not at all clear. I think all of us have ideas what we can do um, to lessen its impact. But I wish that there were some kind of panacea, that there was one kind of medicine that we could administer in a certain dosage um, that would cure this problem. And I'm afraid nobody has really discovered it. Um, mm. I don't know, Jorgen, if you personally knew um, Robert Wistrich, a professor at Hebrew University, who was really an outstanding intellect. Sadly, he died very young. He was one of the great authorities on anti-Semitism, uh, a very distinguished historian, wrote a number of books on the subject, but I uh, always remember the title of those books. One was The Longest Hatred, and the other mm. was The Lethal Obsession. And I can't mm. think of any words that more appropriately describe anti-Semitism than the titles of those books. No, it's true, and it's, uh, you know, if we sadly look at our own Christian history, um, this is definitely the case. It was an underlining stream from the very first centuries of Christianity. And it's a, a long lasting stream that was going and characterizing churches. And, and I'm not sure what is your take on for many centuries, actually anti-Semitism in Europe was, uh, I have to say this sadly as a Christian, was the trait of the Christian church. They ins instigated it and they taught it from their pulpits. Well, you know, first of all, I think that to confront that history, um, with clarity is certainly a first step and to acknowledge that uh, the, the anti-Semitism in a way runs like a kind of scarlet thread throughout Christian history. So to at least put that, put that on the table and express that very frankly is a very significant, uh, it's a very significant development and a very positive one. And obviously introspection uh, is an important, is an important thing. Um, with respect to what we see today, it's extraordinary that you see anti-Semitism existing, of course, still among certain people who profess to be Christians, um, but also uh, among self-professed uh, self progressives, uh, people who believe that they are uh, offering, offering uh, a more liberal interpretation of things. And we find this uh, all over the place. I'm saddened. To, I'm saddened to say that nobody is really free of this. Um, it's interesting that you, you speak about the place of uh, antipathy to Jews or anti-Semitism, even in Christian history. I can share with you, I, I think um, your listeners in a way almost prefer to hear a personal take on things than a, a very theoretical one, which presumably they can, they can read themselves in any number of books on the subject. But a number of years ago, about 15, I was asked to serve as a kind of scholar in residence for a group of young adults from a number of countries in Central and Eastern Europe who were traveling in Poland and they were making a kind of study tour. And entirely unexpectedly, an opportunity arose to teach them something um, which I couldn't myself even have imagined. We 
made an unexpected stop in the city of Sandomierz in Poland. We were traveling from Lublin to Kraków. I still remember it like it was yesterday. So I think it was 15 years ago. And when we stopped in Sandomierz only for a rest stop, I said, well, wait a minute, if we're here, perhaps it's possible to visit the cathedral in Sandomierz, which is very well known. Um, mm. It's well known uh, in part because there is a, a series of paintings in the cathedral uh, one of which is supposed to represent the the, the uh, murder of Christian children uh, by Jews, and I went to the I went to the to the entrance of the cathedral and I came in, and I saw a nun there, and I said I am with a lot of people from different countries and we're interested to see the cathedral. Would it be possible to to visit? And she said, Yes, you've come at the right time. I, I can I can uh, explain something, but I'm afraid I don't speak English. I said, that's quite OK. If you don't mind, I will translate simultaneously. And so, of course, she explained uh, what, what, what needed to be explained about the construction of the church when it was built, uh, under what circumstances, and something about these paintings. And suddenly we came to this very contentious uh, painting, which was quite shocking. And the nun explained that this is a painting of Jews uh, using Christian children uh, for their ritual purposes, draining their blood for matzah. She just presented this as it was a fact. Oh and gosh. I translated this without any commentary. And of course, the, these young people, they were in their early 20s, were astonished. And one of them said, you can't have translated that correctly. Can you please clarify that? So I said, this young man would like to know, is this what you said? She said, absolutely. So she, one of them said, but do you really put, said, please ask the nun, do you really believe that? She said, look, I don't know. Uh, I can't say that all Jews do that, uh, but every religion has sects. And obviously, obviously there's a sect in the Jewish religion um, that sacrifices these Christian children. And in fact, this painting was the work of uh, Carol de Prevo, the very famous Italian master uh, who was commissioned to paint it. He wouldn't have done it otherwise. Wow. Um, so at any rate, we, we thanked the nun at the end of the tour. We left, we got back on this coach. And as you can imagine, everybody was shocked. And one mm. of them said, is, is this woman an idiot? Doesn't she know that the, John Paul II has said that anti-Semitism is a sin against man and God? How do you explain that? I said, look here, the nun, were you to ask her, is she anti-Semitic, would certainly say she is not. She is only presenting... Uh, facts about the Jewish people as she understands them. Uh, I don't think that her her intention was to tell you a deliberate lie, but this is what she this is what she believes, or this is the way she was educated. And I remember thinking to myself, I couldn't have orchestrated a better uh, mm. a better example of anti-Semitism, even had I tried. And I don't think anybody who was on that coach will ever forget that because it was just such a dramatic. Um, example of anti-Semitism, but again, that's anti-Semitism in a particular, in a among a particular circle, and we could discuss this anti-Semitism in the left, in the right, among uh, nationalists against those who don't believe any longer in the nation-state. It's all over the place. I mean, you don't have to look any further than what is happening today in this terrible, terrible war being waged by Russia uh, against Ukraine. All the conspiracy mm. theories that are creeping out. Or for example, um, the, unfortunately the pandemic, Corona is still with us happily. We hope it's on the wane, but 
there were so many there were so many theories being circulated about why Jews are to blame for this, almost like it was the Black Death. And unfortunately, with the uh, advance of certain technologies, it becomes much more much more uh, it becomes much easier, much more convenient to spread these kinds of calumnies about Jews, because anybody with a laptop sitting any place, any part of the world, or anybody with the ubiquitous mobile telephone can do likewise. So you mentioned those two uh, just very recent incidents, COVID-19 and the, the current Ukrainian-Russian war. Uh, so you say there are people out there who develop conspiracy theories, which blame the Jews actually being responsible for those two fatalities. Well, I, th I think this is quite clear. Um, you know, Obviously, in every generation, there are going to be crackpots and people who have all kinds of strange agendas. But obviously, they would not be able to circulate those agendas if they didn't have uh, people who believe them and if it didn't fall in a way on fertile ground. But there are large numbers of people, I wouldn't dare guess how many, who mm. are ready to believe these things. And they have ideas about the Jews. Um, and when these kinds of theories are circulated, um, of course, it's a way almost like music to their ears. Um, you look even at something like the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, which is, of course, a notorious fabrication that was um, revealed generations ago to be a forgery. And there are large numbers of people who still believe that. And that book continues to circulate and is translated into many languages. Uh, and again, why is that the case? I, I wish I could say it's only because we have been deficient in educating young people. Undoubtedly, we have been deficient in educating young people. But it seems that even in countries where the curriculum in the schools should be adequate to address these issues, it isn't always. And I can give you perhaps the best example. Um, we had always believed, and you know, I'm not a youngster, uh, once the story of the destruction of the Jewish people in Europe would be brought to a wider audience of young people in schools and they would learn what happened to the Jewish people and what a terrible crime it was, that would somehow, that would somehow uh, inculcate in them the idea that anti-Semitism is wrong and it's even a sin and it's a dangerous thing. But that hasn't really happened. Even though we have generations of young people who have learned about the Shoah, either they don't believe it or either the way it has been taught is insufficient, uh, it's not appropriate. Hard for me to say, but mm. you would expect certainly in countries, in, let's say in Western Europe or North America, where this is a part of the education system, that anti-Semitism would be understood to be a terrible thing. But evidently, there are still vast numbers of people who don't think that way. Why is that the case? I wish I had the answer, but I don't. Well, I, I think this would be probably a whole different seminar. What, what are the roots of anti-Semitism? But uh, Lawrence, you are also the, um, the, the, the Israel chairman of the World Jewish Council, which has Jewish community in amateur in how many countries around the world. Would you see there are certain areas in the world today, certain countries where anti-Semitism is in particular a problem right now? Or do you see also certain areas where you say, actually, they are doing quite well. We don't have any traces of anti-Semitism in those countries. 
Well, you know, I think that it's very much a case of the glass being half full or half empty. There are cases, there are countries in which I think the um, attempts to combat anti-Semitism have been more successful or less successful. Um, I wouldn't even want to identify them. However, what I could say is you also have a certain paradox because you have cases in which um, Jews can walk the streets in relative safety. In other words, mm. they don't have to fear for their physical safety. Um, but on the other hand, or, or something else, the government is very supportive of the state of Israel. But on the other hand, um, there are organized attempts to whitewash the local complicity in the destruction of Jews during the Holocaust. So you have this, you have this uh, paradox. In some countries, for example, the civil society is in a better shape, um, but Jews have, 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 have great difficulties. Uh, either they are, they are uh, in danger personally if they are recognized as being Jews because of their, uh, their garb, or they're, they're wearing a wearing a skull cap, a yarmulke, or a Magen David, the Jewish star around their neck. Mm. Um, and I've seen this myself. So I don't think that there's any place in the world where the situation is entirely positive. And I must say, even in North America, people had long believed, well, certainly in the United States, um, and we won't, won't go into a lengthy discussion. The situation of Jews is about as good as it's going to get. And here you see so many examples of, in, in recent years, of violence, including lethal violence, leveled against, leveled against Jews. Uh, the destruction of the attack on the synagogues in, in uh, Pennsylvania, Texas, California. So the situation is, is, is not mm. ideal in any place. And also you have, for example, certainly in, in Western European countries, the idea that certain Jewish practices, whether it's uh, Brit Milah, circumcision, um, or Jewish, Jewish, Jew, Jewish animal slaughter, should be, should be outlawed, which of course would essentially mean the end of Jewish communal life in those countries, which is something really quite hard to imagine uh, so many years after the Shoah, in countries that think of themselves uh, as being as being very tolerant and very liberal. And I think this is what you said also in the very beginning. Sometimes those um, new forms of anti-Semitism, they come under the shade of so-called liberalism and even secularism. And uh, they are targeted in a very unique way just against the Jewish people. You know, you spoke much about this uh, societal uh, anti-Semitism, you know, with those ancient conspiracy theories. I must say I was shocked that the uh, uh, the blood libel, that this is still believed even today uh, in Christian communities. So this is uh, really shocking news. But of course, also those conspiracy theories that uh, existed throughout the centuries against the Jewish people in the countries. But you have today a new form of uh, anti-Semitism, which uh, uh, some people call it, it's anti-Israelism. And you find this even in places like the United Nations and in government circles where you see uh, the Jew among the nations, the state of Israel is being singled out in an unusual way and, and, and it's uh, the target of criticism and hatred like no other nation. Can you say a few words about that? Yeah, first of all, Jürgen, I'm very glad that you've raised that because perhaps in terms of what is the greatest threat 
to us today, it may well be that phenomenon. With respect to even something like the blood libel, my guess is that that's become in recent years a rather more marginal phenomenon. I only mention it because it's astonishing that such a thing still exists. Mm. You know, I think that with respect to um, anti-Semitism uh, concealed in anti-Zionism, that's really nothing, nothing new, but of course it's uh, very pernicious. And in a way, it's uh, especially disturbing that you see this in countries that on the one hand say, look, uh, we can never forget the terrible things that were done to Jews during the Holocaust. Um, but then they go on, then they go on to savagely attack Israel. And I, I find that in a way especially disturbing because in a way it's almost as if, you know, uh, we love dead Jews, uh, but the live ones are, are a bit much to take. Um, I think that this is something that uh, has to be exposed constantly. And the very idea that as Jews, we are not entitled to what every other nation has, which is our own, our own sovereignty and our, our, our own country, is to me so patently anti-Semitic. So it, 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 it should be clear to everyone, but it isn't. But you know, I'm an, I'm an historian and I like to always look at examples in history. There's a very famous speech of Vladimir Zev Jobotinsky in 1937 when he testified before the Peel Commission in which he said, you know, it's strange that you deny, you want to deny to the Jews what every nation has, even those that, who have made what we might say only a very negligible contribution to civilization. They're all entitled to have a country, only the mm -hmm. Jews are not. And at the time that he made those remarks, I can't remember, there were perhaps five Arab countries. And he said, there are so many Arab countries already, you deny to us one, but you would create another. And here you are in a situation where there are more than 20, but you still wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't accept the idea that you should have one. You know, and also you remind me of an event I attended in Jerusalem. It must have been well over 10 years ago where I was invited to sit on a panel. I can't even remember the subject, but it had something to do with uh, Israeli politics in the Middle East. And the person who spoke before me uh, if I'm not mistaken, was from one of the West European countries. I think one of the Benelux countries, I don't, I could find out, but I don't, that's not really so critical. He took pains to say in his opening remarks before he would level a very sharp critique of Israel. I want you to know, I do recognize the right of Israel to exist. <laughs> and of course, my blood was boiling. And when it was time for me to stand up, I said, I would like, before I say anything, to make very clear, I think the guy was from Belgium, that uh, lest there be no mistake of anyone in this audience, that I recognize the right of Belgium to exist. I don't want anybody to leave this room thinking otherwise. <laughs> I mean, it was so condescending. Mm -hmm. It was disgraceful. Um, but that's what we are facing today. And unfortunately, you are facing that in even educated circles. And there was a time years ago where I think people felt you couldn't say those kinds of things in polite company. You know, this chattering class still understood there were certain, there were cer there were certain things that in polite company around a dinner table among people you didn't know you couldn't say. And I'm afraid uh, we're long past that time. And mm -hmm. when it comes to attacking Israel, 
it's open season. You can say whatever you want, even things that are so uh, utterly, utterly absurd. And it will be unusual for somebody to stand up and say that is utterly absurd. You obviously have some anti-Semitic agenda because no normal intelligent person would say such a thing. And Jürgen, lest there be any mistake, we are not living, we are not living yet in the world to come. Israel, of course, is, 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 is the sum total of its population. We are mm. not all tzaddikim. We are not all saints. We don't always behave in every situation perfectly. And we are happy to hear reasonable, reasonable critique. There are things we could do better, undoubtedly. But when somebody stands up and says to me, well, before I go further, I recognize your right to exist. Very sorry. I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to have that discussion. I don't need that person's recognition of my right to exist in the land of Israel. I received that from a much higher authority. When he will tell me I don't have it, then, oh, then we can have the discussion, but not before. Well, you, you're also right. And unfortunately, I have to say what you just said, this very sentence that we uh, stand for Israel's right of existence. I even hear this many times from our very own German government where I'm coming from. And I was invited on a political panel the other day and and I actually challenged the politician who says, you know, how do you dare to even say that sentence? The state of Israel in 1948 already existed before there was even a German Republic of States in 1949. Only one year later, there was a German state. So there is this definitely this this talking down to the state of Israel that you wouldn't dare to, to do on any other nation. Um, you know, when we talk about the United Nations, maybe you can say a few words there. It is striking that literally every given year, every single year, when there are uh, general assemblies, when they have meetings about different nations, you can guess every year on average there will be somewhere between 15 to 20 resolutions going against the state of Israel. And sometimes some of the most uh, amazing tyrannies of the world, countries that are violating human rights uh, with their hands and feet in every possible way. There might be one single resolution against those countries, and Israel is so much exposed to criticism. Is this a political form of anti-Semitism today? Oh, I think undoubtedly it is. And I think that um, on the one hand, that's very troubling. Um, but on the other hand, um, when I see these very lopsided votes, you know, you have to look who is standing with you, who are your friends. Mm -hmm. And you generally say, we can tell a lot about the person by their friends. And we can tell a lot about a person by who their, well, who their adversaries are. And if those are our adversaries, it's not that I, I seek to make enemies or adversaries. Of course I don't. And uh, we have to talk with all the nations of the world but when those, um, have we call them, usual suspects uh, mm. are at the front of the line to pillory Israel, I think it says a great deal uh, about who they are and what kinds of societies they are. Of course, it's troubling because often um, those countries represent tremendous political or economic power. But I think, you know, you can't live in the circumstances that we have here in Israel without having very thick skin. Um, mm -hmm. And you learn what to take more seriously and what to take less seriously. And obviously, even our friends and the countries with which we have very close relations 
and with which we have great respect, often uh, they behave in ways that we find puzzling uh, mm. and at times not only puzzling, disappointing, um, but I'm afraid that's the nature of international relations. Not everybody is going to behave the way we would like them to. And uh, for the most part, there are things going on behind the scenes that are not always immediately evident. And we wish that mm. everybody would uh, behave with absolute morality and adhering, adhering to, certain, to, certain, to a certain code of ethics. Um, but perhaps that would be too much to expect. You know, there's a, a fascinating developing a development in the Middle East today through the Abrahamic Accords. Uh, many, many years ago, I uh, actually still as a student, I I drove by car through Syria and, and Lebanon mm. and a number of uh, uh, Israeli neighboring countries, which are which at that time were um, t some of them even today were super hostile against Israel. And I was shocked to go in a bookshop even in in Turkey, and you could find a Turkish version or an Arab version in in Syria of Hitler's Mein Kampf, and this. Books that are banned in many Western European countries, you could buy them in bookshelves and there were bestsellers in those countries. Now, with the Abrahamic Accords, do you see a change in the attitude of the Arab population in those countries like uh, Bahrain or Dubai or some of those countries that are linking up with Israel, that those old stereotypes might be diminishing? They will be for sure still there. But do you see a positive trend there? I'll tell you, it's hard for me to say, Jorgen, because I don't like to speak uh, about things uh, with which I'm not personally familiar, with which I don't really have any insight to offer. Undoubtedly, there is a change, and undoubtedly, the fact that uh, we have so much traffic between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain, and another a number of other countries, Morocco in particular, is a very positive is a very positive development. Um, but again, you are talking about countries in which the political culture is rather different than ours. They are, these, are not, mm -hmm. these are not Jeffersonian democracies uh, where you know precisely what the average man and woman is, is, is thinking on the street because you can gauge that also um, by the electoral success of various political parties. Undoubtedly, mm -hmm. these are not those kinds of countries. Nonetheless, at least... Uh, the fact that those countries have opened up to Israel is, is certainly game-changing. I must tell you, I have personally now contacts in some of these countries, and whenever I've had a Zoom call with any of them, I'm still of the generation that I find that electrifying. Uh, it's in a way almost thrilling. I'm not yet at the point where that is to me just uh, completely normal, but for others it is. And I, I'm perhaps one of the last of my own acquaintances who hasn't been in, in Dubai or Abu Dhabi. I don't know how many flights a day there are from Ben-Gurion Airport to, to the airports in the Gulf. So that's absolutely positive. And I certainly hope, God willing, uh, over time, and this is something that is not like switching on uh, an electric light, that you can mm. change uh, generations of socialization overnight. But I do believe the, the atmosphere is changing in a very positive way. I would also add, um, just, uh, you know, you spoke about seeing this kind of anti-Semitic literature on display. The next time you are in my office, I can show you a copy uh, of Mein Kampf in Arabic translation and also the protocols of the learned elders of Zion that are calling bought in the old city of Jerusalem within the last four years. So wow. uh, this material is, of course, uh, available all over. 
um, perhaps more worrisome uh, from my point of view, and I think certainly for, for, for people who are studying this, is what you see on the internet and what is, on, what is available to people who are, who are, I think you call it surfing, surfing the net. Uh, another mm -hmm. thing one must also monitor, and I had a discussion about this just yesterday, is what you see in Wikipedia. Because today, for mm -hmm. most people, the first and only source of information on any topic is Wikipedia. And I, I don't know myself um, to what extent the information that is being presented in, let's say, Arabic language Wikipedia sites or Farsi language Wikipedia sites is entirely, is entirely uh, objective. Or representative, and one would have to, and there are people presumably who are doing that. Um, so this is a work in progress, but I must tell you, there is tremendous reason for optimism. Had you spoken about Israel um, engaging with these countries openly 10 years ago, it would have been almost unthinkable. So this is obviously uh, a very positive development, one that should fill us all with cheer even if we have uh, realistic expectations, and that is that we, things are not going to change among the, the society uh, overnight. Well, we spoke about two areas of uh, anti-Semitism. One of them is uh, um, what you see in society, and I do see here quite interesting a post from a lady called Irene Charles, and she says, well, just a few years ago in my city, at least there was a continuous protest outside McDonald's. That's very sad to read that. I met a young woman in a, outside McDonald's in the UK. I met a young woman who had been told and uh, verified that they were protesting because Israel was sending human meat to, to make those hamburgers. I was shocked to see this in the 21st century. And that's uh, even worse to what you experience in that church, so that they even feel that uh, uh, they are uh, defiling uh, hamburgers or of eateries. But I think this might be still minorities of people in our in our societies who believe that we spoke about a very problematic phenomenon that actually has quite some power and uh, is very impactful, especially in the United Nations. That's political anti-Semitism, where there's a, a very one-sided attack against Israel. But uh, let's talk about another form of uh, anti-Semitism, even in our media today. You know, one of the reasons I came here to Israel as a student at the Weizmann Institute that really sold me to work for the International Christian Embassy when I was a young student. I was living there during the uh, beginning of the Intifada and the attacks that were with the Dissenkopf bombing, bombing, bombings, etc. And I saw what our German newspapers were reporting. I lived at the time in Israel. I was appalled about the one-sidedness of those reports. Uh, can you make a few comments about anti-Semitism in the media today? Oh my, well, that's a broad topic. Um, I think it's clear that we can identify whether certain journalists or certain media outlets, um, which have a very clear agenda um, and uh, which propagate information about, about Israel, which is patently, patently false. The problem is not so much with those, I think it's with those who insert this kind of message in a more subtle way. In a way, it's almost like uh, this this woman who has just uh, uh, been on the line with us, 
who spoke about those uh, protesting in front of McDonald's about the human human uh, sorry that the this is human meat you know that's so absurd that uh, I can't believe that most sane people would believe such a thing. So there are some, you know, there are some lies that are so, so egregious that most people won't, won't buy them. But there are some messages that are inserted in a very subtle way. And so very often you can see in the headlines um, of certain media outlets, um, messages which are, which are subtle. So for example, uh, if Israel reacts with military force, to the use of use of lethal violence, it will always say Israel has Israel has done this uh, without obviously without obviously the appropriate context that this was a reaction uh, to a certain to a certain incident. There are many there are many such uh, examples. I don't think that the time we have on such a call would enable us to uh, identify uh, any of them. But it's a phenomenon that exists, and of course, it's a very it's a very troubling one and. You have some organizations that are also doing very good work in trying to trying to identify uh, such cases. Uh, but this is this is around the clock. This is around the clock operation and one that must be done, obviously, in in, in every country. Uh, I can tell you just as an example, the World Jewish Congress has a wonderful cadre of young professionals, uh, very well educated people who are working in many different fields. And one of the things that they do, for example, is identify such cases and respond, and they are able to respond eloquently and forcefully, um, whether writing op-eds and so forth to counter such instances. This has to be done all the time. You know, mm. it's interesting. Uh, I first came to know the International Christian Embassy through a very dear friend of mine who is no longer with us, whose name was Shmuel Katz. And Shmuel mm. Katz was the biographer of uh, Jabotinsky. He was a, a, a wonderful friend and, 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 and mentor. Uh, I might say, I don't know if I would be living in Israel today were it not for, not for his influence. Mm. Um, and he used to always quote Jabotinsky again, saying that you can never allow such a calumny to pass unanswered. Whenever something is written like that, and today, of course, not really written, but transmitted, uh, you must always respond forcefully. And I think that probably is still very true. And it's especially true when you're dealing with outlets um, that have a wide reach. I mean, obviously, it's impossible. Uh, there are so many bloggers. There are so many people today, as I said, everybody with a, with a mobile phone sitting in a dungeon someplace can transmit their messages. But when you're dealing with uh, respected media outlets, of course, one has to, one has to respond uh, effectively. Well, you bring me to uh, my last question before I would like to open it for uh, questions for Q&A. So if everybody, anybody has a question today to Dr. Lawrence Weinbaum, please put them down in the chat section. But on this call, you have uh, many Christian activists around the world. And, uh, you know, for you, as you, you of course, you, you live in Israel, but um, speaking for the communities that, let's say, the World Jewish Congress represents around the world, what in the eyes of a local Jewish community would you like to see the Christian community would do in defense of Israel? What is the, what is the best action plan for a Christian activist in Europe or in Latin America to stand up and challenge anti-Semitism? Well, I mean, I think that uh, you've given the answer in your question. 
and that is to challenge anti-Semitism wherever you see it. So you are uh, living in many different parts of the world. And when you see such uh, examples, whether it's in the media, whether it's in political discourse, it's not to uh, look at this and shrug your shoulders and say, well, this is the nature, this is the nature the world in which we live and there are people there are people who for whatever twisted reasons hate Jews or hate the, the the Jewish state you must obviously respond in whatever way you can uh, concretely I don't know because obviously in every situation in every country it the situation is, is, is rather different um, but certainly when it comes to the political life making making politicians aware um, that they are being observed, and when they when they say things about Israel which are false, um, when when they when 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 they direct their hostility to Israel, they should be told this is unacceptable. And likewise, when this is in the media, uh, there are some communities which organize demonstrations in front of uh, offending uh, parties. I suppose this is also very effective because you're drawing mm. attention. Uh, to this. And I would say something else. I, I know that uh, nearly everyone on this call uh, is, is, is a person of faith. You are God-fearing people. Your prayers are also uh, very welcome. And, and, we, and, we, and we hope that we call the Kadosh Baruch Hu, uh, the Lord God is hearing, is hearing your prayers. Amen, amen. And, and you know what? One thing also, what I might add to that, I was talking, you might remember him, a member of the Dutch parliament, uh, Reik van Damme. And he, yes. he really convinced me early on to engage in political lobbying because he says when he was elected for the um, House of Parliament in Holland, they had a rule of thumb in their community that if they receive a letter from one citizen that complains to them about certain thing, this letter represents, I forgot the number, either one or 5,000 people, because they know from 5,000 people, maybe only one of them would dare to write us. And I think this is something which the listeners also should not underestimate. If you hear your politician in the parliament maybe making a, 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 a law against Israel or bringing a, a statement that is critical on Israel, if you write him a letter, he might take that very serious. And if maybe two or three of your community will do that because those guys, they want to be re-elected. And so there are very many practical ways how we can uh, take an effort here. I think that you're absolutely correct. There is one thing I would caution, and I see this among my compatriots, among my own brethren, I may say, and that is not every case when somebody is critical of Israel. It's not in every case we should uh, immediately say, well, this person has an anti-Jewish agenda. Not in every case it is. So obviously one has to one has to look at this with uh, a degree of equanimity. In other words, not to leap. I mean, there are cases when we leap because it's so very clear, but there are cases when uh, this is not so clear. And in those cases, one must think carefully is a reaction going to be uh, counterproductive or productive? So obviously, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, one has to one has to uh, act with 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 reasonable caution. Sadly, the cases in which it's so clear are so overwhelming. The number is huge um, that it isn't always such a problem. But it is what it is, as they say. 
Well, as we go to the questions, the very first question that comes out here is a, a very simple one to answer. It is Penina Owen. She's asking, where can your book be purchased? Oh, well, you know, I'm very sorry, but that book uh, has only appeared in the Polish language. And my colleague and I are presently working on an English edition, uh, which we hope, God willing, will come out next year. Uh, when we mark the 80th anniversary of the revolt in the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, but don't hold me to that because it's a slow process. We are trying to abridge the book, which is uh, about five, between 500, around 550 pages. And we're trying to cut that down to a more manageable length uh, so that normal people can read and appreciate it. Or you should make a book series out of, out, out of it in three or four parts. Oh. <laughs> I have more sympathy but, for my readers than you do, Jorgen. <laughs> <laughs> but we will, if, if this comes out, we will definitely have you back to speak about, about the uh, Warsaw Ghetto and the uprising there. And of course, the book will be available. But, um, um, you know, repeating again what we said, it's important in the day in which we are living in to discern anti-Semitism in our countries and to, sp to speak up on that. And this can be on a political level. I was in Germany right now, our German office the other day, they organized a just, it was a prayer march for Israel. And it was noticed in the, in the uh, media. They didn't even say it was a prayer march, but they said, Christians gathered together at, at Stuttgart Town Square to show solidarity to the state of Israel. And I think those little things, even if it's just a few hundred people who come together, they can have a huge impact in a community. And also education, you, you know, you sobered us a little bit in the beginning where you said, you know, even though people are very educated today about the Holocaust, um, they still tend to be anti-Semites, even the young generation who learn about that in the school. But I still believe education is important for to help people to make a, a clever decision about what's happening in the Middle East. And I think you're absolutely correct. Perhaps I my the message I wanted to transmit, um, I, I didn't do clearly enough. Undoubtedly, education is very important, but I think we have to look very carefully what we are teaching and what is the most effective way uh, to transmit certain to transmit certain messages. Um, so simply to say, oh well, it's just all it's all a question if we will introduce X number of hours in curriculum about the Shoah, the problem of anti-Semitism will disappear. Unfortunately, we found that isn't the case. Uh, as, as as somebody who believes deeply the importance of education for sure we must work on that uh, but again that requires that requires uh, patience it requires also uh, a great deal of determination in, in and and selectivity what should we what should we be teaching and also never underestimate the education that people are receiving off the internet because most young people spend many more hours in front of the computer screen than they do in in in, in the classroom and so it's very important also that there be a lot of information available on the Internet that is credible. I can say that our organization, the World Jewish Congress, is doing a great deal um, in that department. It's identified this as one of the one of the uh, one of the one of the, the important challenges we have. There's something else I'd like to tell your listeners. Uh, first of all, my gratitude to them uh, for hearing what I had to say, but also not to lose hope. 
sometimes uh, the situation mm. looks very bleak and you think to yourself my god what can we what can we do there are so many people who are hostile uh, never 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 lose hope we we mm. will triumph ultimately and this is a matter of uh, faith you know in the um, passover seder we read from the haggadah and one of the very important lines in the Haggadah, with which, of course, you, Jürgen, are familiar, is that in every generation, someone rises up uh, mm. to destroy us, but that uh, the Holy One, blessed be He, always delivers us. And if you believe in that, uh, and I think Jewish history, uh, from the earliest times until the present day, even in the darkest moments, that's been, that's been the case. Uh, we've had many challenges, of course, to our faith, but the, the point is never to never to lose hope. No, and I hundred percent agree with you on that. It's that uh, if there is something secure in our world, I believe it is the future of the Jewish people. And I keep telling this our listeners all over the world that when nations rate, rise up against Israel, I remember we had our old friend Ahmadinejad who wanted to wipe Israel out the, from the world map. I said probably it's much more likely that Iran and his people will be wiped out at one day because there is a God in heaven who watches over Israel. Nevertheless, knowing that God watches over Israel, I think also Israel uh, portrays in a way or represents uh, in a way a challenge for human mankind to stand up for righteousness, to stand up for truth. And I believe also every generation will be judged. And I know this took place in my country, in Germany, where the church failed at large, not standing up for the Jewish people. Every generation will have to pass the litmus test if they will be willing to stand up for righteousness, for truth, yeah. and of course, for God's chosen people. And that's, of course, a very dear calling of the International Christian Embassy to mobilize, in particular, the Christians uh, to stand alongside the Jewish people, because in a way we do this uh, for our own sake. And uh, Lawrence, one of the comments that I always share when I speak about the responsibility of Christians to stand up with the uh, for the Jewish people is the story of Esther. Well, Mardochai made this amazing statement to his niece, I believe it was, and, and he told her, says, you know, if you remain silent today, God will raise up somebody else to stand up for the people, but you and your house will perish. And in a way, you know, standing up for those important values, it's not just that we are there to protect the Jewish people because God is watching over them, but it's also for our own survival. Like God told Abraham in the beginning, I will bless those who bless thee, and I will curse those who curse thee. And so this is um, a, a, an eternal lesson that we also have to take from this lesson today, that uh, this is a, a calling of the church to, to and we, we failed so long, so many centuries to actually be one of the biggest or the biggest advocates in the world of the people of the book uh, where we owe our faith to. So with this closing remarks, I'm not sure, Lawrence, if you have uh, another comment that you want to make to us, but we want to thank you very much uh, for your very positive and upbeat, upbeat message also at the end. Any closing words from you? you? Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's both a privilege and a pleasure. Um, and I can only wish you and, 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 and all the people who are working with you and the people who are following you, Godspeed. And thank you very much from the bottom of our heart for, for all that you are doing. 
Well, thank you so much from our side and from all of our listeners that you joined today. I see there were a lot of comments that commented about your uh, excellent remarks and very helpful remarks today. And uh, this uh, lesson, lesson today was also recorded. If you go to our YouTube channel, you can listen to it. You can go through some of the answers again, even use it in your own churches. And uh, this was our uh, weekly webinar. Thank you so much again to Dr. Lawrence, the director of the Israel Council of Foreign Relations, the World Jewish Con Congress Israel office. It was a privilege to have you with us. Thank you so much.